0: That image is lasting. And so I don't like even putting the image out there because those images stay in our heads whether we like it or not. So if it's a kid hugging a dog and that person thinks it's cute, they're going to recreate that image.
1: Hey everyone, I have to say, recording these podcasts has been an incredible experience for me as I'm learning so much from each and every guest. Jen Shryock is another passionate expert that I had the pleasure of chatting with and learned more about children and dogs and how we can keep both safe. We talk about what to look for as red flags for potential problems between kids and dogs, how we can help to educate the public about dog bite safety with children. And even discuss the rare but serious topic of predatory behaviors directed at infants. And this episode is sponsored by AggressiveDog.com, where you can find a variety of educational offerings with a focus on helping dogs with aggression, including the Aggression in Dogs Master Course, the most comprehensive course available anywhere in the world on helping dogs with aggression, and the Aggression in Dogs Conference, a three-day virtual event happening from October 2nd to 4th, 2020, with 10 amazing speakers, all experts in their field. You can find out more by going to thelooseleashacademy.com. Hey everyone, I'm here with a knowledgeable and compassionate Jennifer Schreyach, who is a certified dog behavior consultant, owner of Family Paws LLC in Cary, North Carolina, and she holds a degree in special education. Jennifer is also former vice president of Dog Gone Safe, a nonprofit dedicated to dog bite prevention and victim support. Jennifer also has proudly served on the board member of the International Childbirth Education Association. She's a recognized expert on dog and baby toddler interactions and safety. She's written and spoken extensively about those topics. Her two programs, Dogs and Starks and Dogs and Toddlers, have been featured in national media such as the Wall Street Journal, Martha Stewart Living, along with many TV and radio appearances. In 2000, the Schryock family adopted their first German Shepherd rescue dog. Subsequently, Jennifer became involved with the rescue organization as a counselor and trainer, finding herself supporting families with babies or young children who overwhelmed by the challenges of their situation were often on the verge of surrendering an otherwise beloved dog. And I'm going to jump in and say that, you know, anytime I think of somebody that is an expert in the industry about this topic of dogs and kids and toddlers and babies, it's you. So welcome to the show.
0: (laughs) Hello, thank you so much for having me. And I, I appreciate that. That means a lot to me.
1: Yeah, it's just something that, you know, I love that you are the niche inside of the niche. You know, you've got the specialty here and where you focused on that. And, and I can relate to that as someone that focused on strictly aggression in dogs. It really exposes you to a lot of information that maybe you won't see if you're kind of looking at everything at, at all the time. So, so tell us more about, you know, kind of what got you into getting family paws off the ground and why you're doing what you're doing now.
0: Sure. Well, you know, working in the rescue group, especially with German shepherds, a lot of people would call, like Siri, you know, call about their dog, call about fears, a lot of fear. And that was something that I just, you know, really wanted to help people understand, you know, more, you know, I just thought what we can avoid and prevent some of these owner surrenders with more education and knowledge. Um, I spent a lot of time in my previous career Going into homes, doing early intervention, working with families, and doing consults in their house, as well as um, you know some other things that I've done. So that in-home experience and supporting new families was something I previously was doing, and so it just I don't know the passion with dogs, which I've had my entire life, and supporting new families. It all kind of came together, but the need you know and to prevent heartache in in families and prevent bites to small children is, is huge. And I think there's so much that is preventable. And I want to really work to help get that out there and help families feel empowered with knowledge.
1: And I think you said it all right there. It takes, it's such a both sides of the equation uh, type of topic because, and we're going to talk more about that later about why understanding the human element is so important in these cases and understanding, you know, the family need. And I think, you know, background, uh, uh, you know, makes you perfect for that. So, so let's let's jump right into here to, you know, some – so I was, as I was preparing for the show, I was going through some t- statistics, kind of refreshing my memory about dog bites to children. And as you know, the, the statistics are a little squirrely and they can be all over the place depending on where you go. But for the listeners that may not know some of these, um, you know, stats – there's, you know, the children between the ages of five and nine are typically bitten most or, you know, considered at at most risk. Uh, some studies you read or some places you go to say it's more boys. Uh, but generally speaking, kids in that age range, uh, 51% of dog bites are to children. Again, depending on where you go, 6 to 12 years old or less than 12 years old, uh, majority of dog bites uh, to children are uh they belong the dog belongs to a victim the victim's family or friend 80% or so <laughs> happen at the home and uh one of the uh you know most startling statistics for me is that the children less than 2 years old are make up approximately 26% of fatalities now again that's depending on where you go to get your information but what we can agree upon is that children are bitten a lot and at Uh, highest risk in terms of population. And you had, you and I were just chatting before we got on about a study you found about what's going on with this pandemic. So tell us more about that.
0: There's a new study out of Colorado. um, Elsevier um, with uh, Dixon and Mystery who wrote a new um, study talking about the increase in dog bites related to the fact, you know, since in shelter shelter in place um, and the fact that it's kind of tripled in their emergency Department, um, and that's significant. I mean, I think it's really important. They were saying that they have twice the number of dog bite um, cases as they would in the summertime, which is usually when the increase happens. Which makes sense. You know, kids are home, twenty four seven. I know myself. Everybody's home. <laughs> <laughs> everybody's home in my house. Um, but there's so much going on. There's emotional stress that's being, um, you know you know, passed down to our dogs. There's a lot of changes. Some families are coming together and living together. It could be blended families. Um, There's illness going around. There's a lot going on and that stress and everything leads to kind of a concoction that really does set up dogs and children for a difficult situation with so much exposure.
1: Right. It's going to be interesting to see just how much the statistics, when they're tallied for this year, how much there's an increase in dog bites, not only to children, but to just people in general. In
0: general. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, adults, I, I know, too. We're, we're seeing it everywhere.
1: Yeah. I know, I know I've seen a big uptick in my cases for owner-directed aggression cases mm-hmm. because of the pandemic and everybody being home more often. So what are you, some of your thoughts on why children are bitten more often?
0: Well, you know, dogs communicate in their own special way, right, and so and children communicate in their own special way and when we think about it, kids are just learning social sh- social etiquette and communication, so depending on the age, I mean they 're going to communicate as is modeled for them by other adult human beings, and often that will just clash with, with what our dogs are trying to communicate and how our dogs communicate um, so I often find that that 's the case, I think also too. In general, society has put dogs and children as like, oh, they're best friends. They need to, you know, there's been pictures and images and stories that are all around this magical relationship and everything. And sometimes, sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes, you know, pictures can be one thing, but reality is another. And I think we have to accept and embrace each dog as individuals. And not all dogs are fans of child, you know, children's attention you know it's tough kids are impulsive they're noisy (laughs) they're you know they have a lot going on so
1: yeah so uh, one of the other statistics I was looking at is that children are bitten more often you know in the the face the head the neck area and and uh, specifically more so I think it was in the the ages of five to nine or maybe even younger than that as well so why do you think that is?
0: Well, if you look at how we communicate, our natural response is to go directly in. When we introduce ourselves, we look frontally at each other, we greet each other, we approach each other. So it's natural that children think that's what you do with a dog. So they, you know, when they want to meet a dog, they go right on up into the face, and that's that's normal. The other thing is we use eye contact as humans. Dogs avert their eyes, you know, so kids don't know to do that. So when a dog might offer a signal like lick their lips or turn their head away. To kind of give a little space there and and disconnect, um, a child often will move in to follow the eyes. And so, you know, those distance increasing behaviors that another dog might recognize, the child is perceiving it very differently. And so I think that is a conflict right there.
1: You think it also has to do with the just the size of the child. I mean, your the head of the height of the child is right at the it's dog's head level.
0: Accessibility, yeah. I mean, but I do think kids tend to greet right up in their dog the dog's face often if they're not shown and taught another way. But absolutely, they're at a really good height <laughs> to reach yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. it's
1: the, the most efficient place, I guess. to oh, yeah, a bite. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. So. Segwaying into you know these these kind of more severe bites, we've had uh, you know some instances. There was actually, a case just recently close to me in Rhode Island where an yes. infant was killed by a dog. So, uh, you know, one of the questions I get a lot is, "What's going on there, Mike? What's happening in those type of cases?" And I was, you know, I also had Jim Crosby on the show, and we we had talked a little bit about it as well as these real severe fatalities, which I want to preface a very rare scenario. So Absolutely. I, don't want everybody, I don't want everybody you know, running up in arms about dog safety, but it's, it's rare scenarios for this type of case. But what about like predatory behavior where, um, or what might be considered as predatory behavior in regards to those cases where let's say the infant is sleeping or maybe is crying and then the dog's left alone and something tragic happens?
0: Right. And I think you're referring to the case involving a 17-month-old if it's, I'm correct,
1: it. I think it was some. I don't recall age, but it was in, in uh, Rhode Island, in the East Providence yeah. area. I think
0: the reason I bring that up is because infant and toddler are very different things. And what and and so an infant to me is is tiny baby, not mobile, doing that you know kind of thing when you're about 17 months 15 months that I would say is more in the toddler range and so there's different things in in every single dog bite related fatality um, this is something I worked with Karen DeLise, um, uh for many years on in, in investigations there are always co-occurrences there is always so many factors involved in those cases usually the biggest being unfamiliarity so when it is a visiting child um, it, you know it is a di- it, the the whole playing field is different. So a visiting child with access can lead now, not to get disgusting, but you know, sometimes dirty diapers tend to be also enticing to dogs. So if you have a sleeping child with a soiled diaper, that's a factor um, in some cases. Um, And there's, there's lots of different things, you know, it's child's motion, unpredictability, they're moving, they're squealing. And if a dog has not been socialized or exposed to children that move differently, act differently, and are at, you know, small like that, it is, it is a novel item and and could be perceived differently, whether perceived as prey, you know, all that is different. Now, if you're talking about an infant infant, um, you know, again, That's, you know, smaller babies, we usually, those dog bite fatalities are so preventable with supervision and making sure a dog never has access. We cannot ever trust a dog, especially with a baby that is is new to the home and the dog is not familiar. We have to provide ongoing inclusion opportunities with full awake adult supervision to create a familiarity bond, which is incredibly important
1: you think there's elements so in, in your your research with karen mm-hmm. did you see any elements where um you know the the crying of the baby made have might have had an impact on something called like inst- instinctive drift so we see that same phenomenon just in you know we see it in dog parks where where sure. a dog yelps and suddenly sure. the dogs that with no history of aggression uh attack that dog
0: It's so hard to know specifically what caused the incident, but we can infer or, you know, especially with like premature babies that have a different cry, of course. Crying is, um, most dogs are going to be interested. um, Even any dog is going to be interested in an infant cry. They're going to perk and show some interest. I always tell families, be prepared for your dog to be inquisitive. Now, if your dog gets fixated and your dog is trembling and your dog can't at all redirect and will not, you know, get stiff and tight, like they've talked about in all the other shows about predatory behavior, that's a huge concern. But it, you know, it, the cry absolutely is a trigger for many dogs. Um, It's different. It's not just the cry, it's the whole situation, right? It's the cry, it's the motion. Babies have a lot of um, small movements like startle reflex that are really jarring to dogs. So baby can be laying there really calm, really quiet. And all of a sudden they go, you know, and their whole body just jerks. And that's intriguing. Um, You know, so there's a lot of things. So it's hard to know whether the cry is what does it all the time, or whether, you know, just access and all those factors, a lot yeah, of factors.
1: You made a really important distinction, too, about making sure. So I have clients that say, oh, he's great with kids. He's been around my nine-year-old nephew, my <laughs> seven-year-old niece. Uh, but the dog has never been around an infant. And it's so much different.
0: It is different. This is one of the main reasons I've chosen to specialize in this niche. Because dog on it, you know, kids kids are a different category than infants and dogs infants and toddlers. It just is. It's a whole different... We're talking apples and oranges here. I mean, it's completely different. So a kid is like five and up. They're moving, walking, acting like familiar adults do. There's some predictability. Um, But an infant and a toddler are wild cards to a dog. And they're constantly changing and developing. So as soon as a dog gets familiar with the visual of a specific child or infant, that'll change. So it's not unusual for a dog, you know, for families to go on vacations. And so say they have a six-month-old. When they left for vacation, maybe their dog didn't go with them. They left for vacation. And during that time, their baby starts crawling or moving. Now they come home. Ah, game changer. No one told the dog this was going to happen. Bites happen during those times, because parents think, oh, they already know each other. It's all good. They're familiar. They're family. No, not so much. It's a new situation. And for some dogs, that's really, really one of the times that things peak, right?
1: Yeah. It's something I always mention to my clients, you know, it's, it's, it's you can get this false positive where the dog seems fine, and then that's suddenly that safe thing that was contained to a crib or not moving is suddenly crawling and and or moving in strange ways that it never did. So it can, it can be very startling to some dogs. It,
0: yeah, every we always say babies grow, dogs age. We have to adjust at every stage, and it's so true. And you know, during those first two years, there's a tremendous amount of changing. And so, you know, our dogs don't have the app that lets them know <laughs> this little being's gonna be crawling, this little being's gonna be screaming and banging things. Um, they're grabbing, doing all the things that babies do. Um, so, those magical milestones for parents, the parents are more familiar with their baby and they're assuming their dog is going along for the ride with that. But not so much, the dog needs to be prepared. We must prepare with our dogs for life with toddler and preparing ahead of, of, ahead of each stage is really important
1: So what are some of the red flag behaviors? you know I know that 's kind of a loaded term, so what are some of the behaviors or things to look for that would uh, raise your sensors in terms of problems
0: mm. Well, dogs that have resource guarding behavior is obviously going to be a huge red flag, but dogs that also, you know, fixate, you know, um, if, if, uh, a family has an, an infant and they're talking about their dog is, you know, shaking, they can't redirect they're they're really tight, their body's tight, you know, they can't, nothing's distracting them, those kinds of things, um, then, then that's an emergency situation, um, things where, but common problems also too. And I don't, I, to be honest, I don't see that as often as some of the other things that I might see. Um, but but not real severe, like mm-hmm. <laughs> intense. Thank goodness. I mean, there, there definitely have been cases that I've seen that are pretty intense on that, on that side. But it's more once baby starts moving and crawling that we see a tremendous amount of challenge. But resource guarding, that's a big red flag. We have a lot of problems with that with children.
1: And and just to clarify, you mean resource guarding of just any objects or the typical type of things?
0: Food, people, space is a big one. Um, You know, the dog that maybe started out resource guarding certain items, but now has transferred that to a lot of items. Um, You know, that can be really challenging in a home with a child. Um, You know, so it it really, especially spatial resource guarding. So, you know, if a child's moving in a certain area and the dog's weary and watching from across the room, you know, and is giving a lot of signals and stuff. Yeah, those kinds of situations are really tough with resource guarding because kids are all over the space. They're all over the place.
1: What are some things that you might say are not common, even for us dog professionals, that in your experience over your years have popped out at you? As far
0: as not common behaviors, as far, I'm, I'm not sure. That,
1: sort of like that, that, that you would consider a risk or something where you were like, whoa, we've got to get this dog out of the home or this is not a safe situation.
0: I, de- I definitely have seen that, again, resource guarding is one of the major things where a dog is guarding from other people in the house. Um, I also really huge, huge problem situations are if the dog is has bitten um, or has a history of biting the trusted adults in the home, that's, that's pretty serious. Um, and, you know, if we're not having a good situation there with the trusted adults, we can kind of expect that there are going to be complications down the road. Um, you know, obviously people are super worried about the dog that might've killed something, say a cat or squirrel. Those behaviors are extremely concerning for parents. I might view it differently. There's a lot of information I'd want to look into about that just because it was a cat, say it was a cat in the yard. I'm, I'm not saying it's a good thing. It's definitely not. I love my cats. Um, a cat in the yard, a lot of people will be devastated because their dog killed the cat in their yard um, and they'll assume that that means their baby's hugely at risk and, um, you know, we need to look at all, all different factors, other behaviors, um, you know, how that, you know, what the circumstances and everything involved in that. So those are things that I want to dig deeper and find out a lot more about. Um, but that is one that really just terrifies people or dog to dog aggression where a dog has um, possibly injured another dog. Those are really, those can be really hard. We have to be very careful about that. I agree. Looking looking into management, looking into uh, including a veterinary behaviorist, muzzle training, all those kinds of things. So,
1: yeah, have you seen any cases? I'll tell you about a case I had. This was a few years back, where the, you know, the owner was describing the dog as sort of like high pitched whining, and I, you know, I, I got the history, and their description of it was, it was they, th- I think she just misses the child, the, the baby, or the, this was a newborn infant. I think she just misses it, and uh, it's constantly, you know, emitting this kind of high pitched whining. And we just think she's sad, just sad to be away from the infant. And then I got some more detail. Have you heard that anywhere else? Well, there was this one time where she was, saw a, a cat and made the same high-pitched sound mm-hmm. and immediately chased after the cat and killed the cat because she got off leash. So what I think that's obviously a big red flag there is just that predatory kind of Yoda yeah. that, that yeah. can be made by some dogs. It's not very common at all.
0: no. no and trembling and everything else that goes with it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and that is a situation, obviously, we have to be looking at safety. So here's, you know, just because a dog may exhibit infancy is a different time than even toddlerhood and three years and five years. Um, you know, I, I it, it definitely is to dogs. And so it, you know, strict, manage, it may be a situation that dog is absolutely not safe in the house. No parent should fear their child's going to be attacked, period. I mean, that's the bottom line. So if, if we're seeing something that's significant, we would be talking about a lot of different things and options for that family. Um, but that is, yeah, I don't, I, I'm not a fan of parents worrying about the safety of, of their child or, um, having extreme stress about that. If, If that is a situation that actually warrants that kind of stress, then we need to deal with that.
1: Right. And, and in that case, that particular dog, they talked them into rehoming the dog to the parent's uh-huh. house, which was which was a solution for them. But it was it took a little talk it because it's it's a paradigm shift for them saying that they think the dog's actually missing the child. Too. Now know. you're worried about the child's safety. So it's
0: yeah, it it is hard for families. To, it is. There's so much complicated about this, this niche. And that is a big thing because this is their baby. And their ba- their first baby wouldn't dare hurt their baby. And that's, you know, it is hard for people to see it differently. Um, you know, just like I talk about kiss to dismiss a lot where a dog is licking. And so, and the whole reason I started that, it's similar to this, is people just assume they're like, I don't understand why you bit my child. He's always kissing him. He's always licking him. And sure enough, in most of the calls I get, and I'm sure trainers here are nodding their heads. When you get a dog and baby uh, call, a lot of times they will talk about the dog always licked the baby. And so it pushed me to dig deeper in, huh, I'm curious about that. What are the patterns here? What are we noticing? It's, it's definitely a distance increasing behavior in some contexts
1: right it's there's a lot of education involved and thankfully that's what you're doing and you know one of the ones i see often too is the dog rolls over on its oh. to pet the belly he must have wanted to be he wanted to be pet on the belly he's showing his belly so he wanted to be pet it. oh, um, a- unfortunately it's one of those things that you know some and sometimes that's true but in some cases the dog's actually using it to make the person go trying to make the person go away Absolutely. or child so
0: a total tap out and you know when uh, What I tell people is with that, because kids are classically, that is another situation that I'll hear is he was rubbing his belly and, you know, and, and then when my child got up, he bit him. And I say, well, you know, okay, let's talk about that. Because what happens with children is they may pet for a longer time than the dog is enjoying it. I t- often talk about like if my daughter was combing my hair, That might be nice at first. And then it might be like, all right, enough, enough. Okay, stop. And, and really, that's a dog's way of saying it. And that's why we encourage, um, I always say pet, pet, pause, see what the dog does, you know, consent test kind of thing. Um, It's super important that we model and initiate that education right from the beginning.
1: That's a that's a really cool analogy about your daughter coming here. Uh-huh. Um, I can't use that. I can't use that same analogy, but I do. I use one where I talk about like someone getting a deep tissue massage. You know, they oh, yeah. they would get. You know, it feels good at first, and then if you just keep hitting that sore area for a long time, you're gonna probably tell that person to stop yeah. in whatever way you need to. So yeah. Right? yeah. What other what other behaviors are like that? So you've got kiss to dismiss. Do you have and we've got dogs that roll over and show their belly. And what are other behaviors like that that are not as where what's often misperceived or as you talk about miscommunication?
0: Oh gosh, definitely licks, tongue flicks. Like when a dog is laying on the couch, this is a classic situation where, you know, toddlers. Um, you know, management changes over time. So a family might have allowed the dog to be in the living room living space, and usually around that time that babies are just starting to get mobile and stuff, we have to make adjustments to management. One of those big adjustments might be your dog's favorite spot on the couch may not be a safe place because your baby is going to have access and they're usually going to be clumsy in it. So they're going to pull themselves up on the couch, reach for the dog, um, dogs will lick their lips, turn their body away, do those things, weight shift, um, yawn. <laughs> um, and a lot of families really don't, don't perceive those things. They don't know to look for it, which is our goal to increase dog-aware skills. That's a definite passion of mine, is to look for those subtle whispers of communication. Um, so important that we pay attention to those. So important. So, you know, all the things you know, that we talk about licking lips, turning away, yawns, scratching, shake offs, all that, all that fun stuff.
1: Do you recommend uh, recording? So not with the child or maybe recording interactions with the adult, So you can then play that back and show them their dog signals. Cause not all dogs are going to display the same signals.
0: Oh yeah. You know, one of my uh, first things I do with a family is do baseline recordings. Um, with each of them, I have each partner call the dog to them We do several different scenarios to observe the behavior and body language. And then we might make adjustments. What if you turn your side? What happens when you're sitting down? Um, All that is super important. And it gives you so much as, as a behavior consultant. My goodness, it's loaded with information. And so just in the relationships between the different people in the household. So yeah, no, absolutely. I want to observe all that and share it so they can be better dog detectives as well.
1: Yeah, it's it's such a valuable too. I had a, a dog, not a ch- dog to child case, but it was a um, dog to uh, biting the owners with handling. And one of the issues was putting a harness on things like that. So uh, they sent me a video and, that's the beauty of video. You can slow it down. You can screenshot yes. things. And one of the screenshots, not funny for the dog, but completely hilarious for me and the owners because the look of horror on this dog's face was you right. know, something you would you'd see online as a meme. It was just really uh, yeah. believable, the picture. But we would have never caught that if we were doing it in real time or even watching the video real time because it was such a snippet in that video. So valuable. Well, for- and,
0: and, I, and one of the things I might do, it's really important to me how... Um, my expecting families show affection for their dog because whatever they're in the habit of doing for their dog with their dog is going to be modeled for that child. And sometimes we need to change their behaviors and kind of look at is your dog really enjoying this? What do you think? Let's, you know, let's check that out. How do you usually give praise? How do you usually give affection? What do you love doing with your dog? I'd love to see that. How do you play? All that stuff. Uh, the more video I have to kind of go through with them and say, so let's look at in eight months. Is this going to be safe? Is this what you want? You know, is this what you want to do in front of your child? Is this one? Would this be safe if your child were to do it? You know, so there's a lot of things we do.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's so much I want to talk to you about during this episode. So I'm going to shift gears here okay. a little bit. And um, because I've seen it, I think what we're going to see a, a little uh, uptick in is or mm. pregnant women in the next uh, about nine months off from yeah, April, yeah. May. And what do you see? Uh, can you talk about what you see with dogs getting more, showing more guarding behaviors of pregnant women towards other family members? Do you see so, that? Yeah
0: a lot of families will report their dog um, either shows more clinginess or protectiveness or guarding. Um And I'm always curious at what stage in the pregnancy, those behaviors kind of start. Um, sometimes the clinginess I associate with um, maybe sometimes there's been a really difficult uh, road to pregnancy, maybe some loss, um, maybe more bedtime, you know, that the dog has actually had more time with the owner and maybe been there as an emotional support. Um, unknowingly. So there can be some of that, I find. Or maybe during the first trimester morning sickness was super horrible. and so there was a lot of really odd behavior <laughs> um, and and lots of changes. Um, and then with the guarding, again, I think there's vulnerability. I know during the seventh month of pregnancy, I certainly wasn't doing speaking engagements and stuff because your breathing patterns off, you're walking differently, your balance is off our dogs really rely on our body language too. They kind of keep watching us all the time to watch what we're doing, how we're responding in our environment. So for some dogs, that's a little instability that I think throws them a curve. They're not sure how to do that. So maybe they think, ah, oh, you know, she's not stable. or <laughs> um, And so I do see an increase there. But again, I'm just Work dogs. My panel of dogs hasn't gotten back to me on that. They're really hard to get information from, for sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I keep trying. It'd be a super interesting thing to research further and see yeah. where where the prevalence of you know what stage right. of the pregnancy, uh, whether it's you know hormone related, what is the dog you know picking up mm-hmm. on. It's super Absolutely. fascinating stuff for me. So, um, so and how
0: does mom feel too? Like if they have right. a vulnerability, like if they're if they're feeling more vulnerable and anxious, um, yeah, we know how that affects things too.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I think yeah, you can probably look at an owner survey with not just pregnancy, but people with illnesses oh, yeah. or being bedridden. You certainly see an uptick in, uh, in those type of situations. So, yeah, really fascinating stuff. Um, so... Uh, you talk about and I and I think I stolen your analogy. I might have stolen this from you but I'm not sure where it came from. But I use like the swimming pool analogy. So like when, when it comes to dog supervision and so if that came from you, I give you credit. <laughs> 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 where you know you got kids in the deep end of the swimming pool and that's there's levels of supervision, which I definitely got from you in terms of how yes. there's differing levels of how somebody's supervising their children. And I use that same analogy with my clients. I said it's like you've got two kids in the deep end of the swimming pool and they're just learning how to swim and and they don't have their life jackets on. So you get what kind of level of supervision you gonna watch there and you're supervising them, but do you know what to look for if they're starting to drown? Oh my
0: goodness. Yeah. So
1: that's, um, I love yeah. that
0: analogy. It's not mine, so I can't take credit, but it's, it's a great example. Yeah, no, everybody says supervise and over time, um, you know, actually in my own home, <laughs> that's where the five types of supervision came. Because I, my daughter was with my husband downstairs um, when she was really tiny, a toddler. She was just crawling around and stuff. And uh, I went upstairs to have a relaxing shower and my husband was supervising, but he was also on his laptop. And so you can imagine that didn't go well at my house. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So we had some issues and I had to really identify what's, what's going on here because I bet everybody's doing this. And that's where really the five types of supervision was born, because we're often passively supervising, which can lead to reactive supervision. If we don't plan ahead and be proactive and say, I might be distracted, I should put a gate up, I should make sure that the dog and baby don't have access. That's what we need to do. And then, you know, so really, that's where I developed the five types of supervision, because I think Many people don't know, but the other thing is they don't know what they're looking at. So I can fully be supervising my child riding a dog <laughs> <laughs> and not know at all what I'm looking at. And and I have many pictures, not of that, but I have many pictures of of my own kids um, when we first started back in 2000, you know, with our first rescue dog, um, of my three-year-old and two-year-old in situations that clearly my dogs were uncomfortable I was supervising, but I didn't know what to look for. I didn't know that the whale eye, licking lips, the head turn, you know, things that I know now. The good thing is parents are trainable. I I really believe that once people see the behavior and our job is to present opportunities for them to recognize those signals themselves. Um, So once they see those those signals and behavior, once they have opportunities to practice that, um, I really find people don't forget it. And it is important that they become really familiar with being their own doggy detective, looking at the ears, the eyes, the tail, the muzzle, gathering all those clues to solve the puzzle. It's huge. It's really important
1: it's so significant and and as you're saying all that it's it applies to really all undesirable behaviors that dogs are going to display or that owners have problems especially in the cases i'm working with dogs with history of aggression it is all it boils down to really being proactive in the environment knowing what could could potentially trigger the dog and knowing what to look for so it's it's just so interesting the parallels there and the sensitivities
0: yeah and the sensitivities One of the things that we talk about in Dogs and Storks is getting to know your dog and looking at all the sensitivities, finding out what things in the environment um, your dog reacts to, learning about how they respond to sound, to smell, to sight, to fast motion, all that changes in appearance, all those things. It's very similar,
1: I'm sure. Right. And it's, you know, again, our job as good behavior consultants and trainers is that part of the education because oftentimes we're going in there and they think we're going to teach the dog to sit and stay and that's going to solve all the problems. But really focusing on just that individual dog and their needs and being proactive about, you know, managing the environment. So, so important. Uh, So in that regard, talking to parents, you know, one of the things I run into sometimes as well is the perception of a dog bite or an aggressive incident with their dog. So, you know, again, we were just talking about the the child riding their dog like a pony and the dog whips around maybe even just growls or just gets a little, you know, nicks the child, gets maybe a low level injury to the child. And the parents are just panicking and, you know, how dare my dog do this? And there's that emotional component. So talk more about that.
0: It's a huge betrayal to to parents. Um, It leads them to a very conflicting place. Um, And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes we look at it as trainers and go, you know, well, you're really lucky. You know, in our heads, we're thinking, all right, that was pretty minor. Like, we can work with that. Um, But I think the bigger factor is has the trust been broken? Is the family able to move forward? Sometimes there's a history in the parent's life that comes into play that they cannot move forward from this incident. Um, Sure, there might be things we can do, and often there are, um, to prevent those kinds of situations. But we really have to take into consideration the emotional ability of the parent to move on and move forward and not be... you know Parents that are super reactive following an incident, which is expected and normal they actually really can create more stress and more more, anxi- more anxious behavior around that child or the child around the dog. So we've got to be really careful. Those situations can lead to a lot of complications.
1: How about on the opposite side of the coin? Now, let's say you have a dog that has bitten a child at a high level and they're Their human animal bond is rich and they're still like, oh, isn't that big of a deal? We love our dog and we just want to work this out. So what Mm. can you do for us?
0: Oh, boy. And, you know, that's sometimes where we really have to have a very serious talk about um, the, you know, the likelihood of it happening again. What's involved in management, the risks. That's where obviously I might draw in more resources like, you know, if this happens again. Here are the services that might be, you know, you might, it might involve child services. You might lose homeowners insurance. You know, your child could severely be injured. Like we have to really help project, like look forward at the pros and cons and the possibilities. Your dog has bitten and and has clearly bitten severely. That's a really good indication of potential future there that I don't think we want to see. Um, You know, so talking to them talking them through it, because that emotional, the conflict between the heart and the head is really hard. So a lot of times I will set up the very, very strict management plans um, that kind of makes it like people have to be committed to the management. And often when they see what's really involved, when we spell it out pretty in detail, the management, muzzle training, talking to a VB, um, you know, liability. You can't have other people in the house, no children. When we go down that path, um, they ease into, I- into the shift of, well, maybe this isn't safe and this won't work. Um, and also, too, I also talk about the fact that we want our children to feel safe in the home. If a significant bite has happened to a child, we have to take into consideration long-term impacts of that. And the stress around that as well. So it is it is super hard. There's a lot of factors that we have to consider. So it's a yeah. complicated case.
1: It is very complicated. kind of also is something I look at in terms of the degree of management when it comes to dog-to-dog, intra-household dog-to-dog aggression, or even dog-to-cat aggression in the home. The parallels are, are strikingly the same, though, with the difference yes. of children, though, again, you mentioned, again, the emotional impact it can have for lifelong. Not to say that cats and other dogs in the home can't also be impacted by the one another dog's behavior, but it's certainly yeah. a very important consideration. You know, you were talking about all the factors. There's just so yeah. much that goes into it. There it, is. And I- You know, I get clients that'll say, you know, there's a certain level of bites. You know, is that the only thing to look at? It's just, there's so many other things. Yeah, I was just
0: going to say some of the other things, too, that I don't think people think about is the amount of judgment that's happening for this family. So they're struggling with their own feelings and emotions. They love this dog. But now outside people, such as professionals, um, I will say that my uh, many families that I see that go to the emergency room, they are just in such a horrible situation they are, their parenting's being judged, their uh, dogs being judged, their whole, they're really being torn apart in some situations, not all of them, but in some. Um, sometimes there's the threat or the potential for social services to be involved, um, especially if it's a repeated situation that's been reported. Unfortunately, you know, there are sometimes those potential. Um, it, it, it is hard and then family family conflict i've seen this rip families apart i've seen it destroy marriages i've seen you know those kinds of things it's it's pretty devastating and you got to remember that this person has a genuine love it's not just a dog it's it's part of them and so helping helping to go through that to navigate that is is really really difficult um, and and it's complex. And sometimes people need time. Sometimes we need to have an alternative place for the dog um, while they feel the less anxiety in the house. You know, to kind of feel how life would be without. You know, there's a lot of different things that you know I would look at as options on the table to ease them in to ultimate decision. I mean, they do get the 10 day quarantine almost always. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of things to talk about.
1: Right again, so many parallels in these cases. Yeah, I like uh-huh. do the same thing with dog dog aggression cases. You know, say so yeah. let's just get the other dog out for, it and let's see how it feels, give everybody That's a little right. de stress time. That's right. Right. So, what do you recommend to trainers that are faced with you had mentioned child endangerment issues, things like that? Mm-hmm. What what are the, What do you recommend for trainers that are faced with that? or that conundrum? They walk into a home, and there's a child at risk. What do you tell the trainers to do in that case?
0: Document. Document everything. I would make sure you have a strong team. I think it's important to document and be very honest about your concerns. Um, If it's a severe risk, I always, I definitely call in another trainer. I always look for a backup. I often will contact a VB, but documentation is critical. Um, I, I think honesty is important too with compassion. Um, You know, these people are already vulnerable. You're in their home. They know something's wrong. We have to be really careful and we have to do better as a profession in that regard. Um, I also really highly recommend that people reach out for support. That's one of the things that I feel strongly about is these cases, and you know this too, these cases are, you don't go home and go, you know, you, you go home and kind of have to shake off yourself. I mean, I've had right. times I've left a client and I literally shook <clears> off and I'm like, I get why dogs do this, um, you know, <laughs> because I have chills, you know. So there there are times that you really have to reach out and be open to learning and working with, a, you know, really collaborating as a team. Those cases, I believe, need a team. Um, you know, so that's important. You have to decide. But I have sent restricted registered letters to people expressing my concerns, those things. I've also copied them it, with permission to the, the client. I always get that to share things with their veterinarian um, ahead of time. But um, yeah, no, I think people need a team of support in that regard.
1: Is there mandatory reporting in some places for, for this? Have you experienced you
0: know, that? That's a really good question. And I don't know that I have the Answer on that um, to to know for sure. I think in some places it might be. I don't know if it's mandatory. I think if you think the child is at risk, reporting it is is important. But I'm not sure about the mandatory part. To be honest, Um,
1: yeah. Thank
0: goodness I haven't. I mean, I know with other professions, I I have done it. Um, But it's a rare case that I would do that. I don't ever take that for granted. I would not ever report a family unless I really seriously, seriously thought uh, they're not getting it. And uh, there's been multiple conversations. And this is a real severe risk. Um, I don't ever want to go down that path for any family um, if it's avoidable.
1: Right. And again, I I, you you mentioned the team approach, which is, of course, where you can get support in making those decisions, because I think, you know, when a child's safety is at risk, we have that ethical obligation to pursue the right. Yeah.
0: yeah, When it involves like calling anybody in, you know, um, outside of our realm, it's yeah, I think it's significant.
1: So let's shift gears here a little bit to more of prevention and are actually what to do here. Now, obviously, oh, people, can, stuff. people <laughs> can go to your site, of course. But, I, I, you know, if I I've had a, a great talk with Sue Sternberg in terms of what direction we would just like to see the culture of dogs turn into, at least in the United States and then across the world. But if you had a wish list for what could change to put you out of a job Right. Mm. If you could change the world for for dogs and kids and and kids never got into trouble again with dogs and vice versa, what would that look like?
0: So for me, it's my tagline. It's creating dog aware generations. It's where we have that two way dialogue where dogs dogs communicate with us and we receive it. We get it. We're like, oh, got it. You're a little uncomfortable here. Well, we're going to ease that for you. It's the two-way street. It's it's respecting a dog has, fe- you know, emotions, feelings, has some opinions about things, <laughs> doesn't doesn't always want us touching them, doesn't always want unfamiliar people touching them and, and all that. I mean, I think it's changing, you know, changing that expectation that, it, you know, if it has four legs and a tail and fur, we should be able to do whatever we want with them. That has got to change. And I believe it starts with... Um, you know, are expecting families learning more, and and being informed more, so they can model a different approach and different behavior. I believe we have a huge ability to do that. You know, a lot of people are shy away from, a lot of trainers shy away from, the the toddler and baby stage. But man, we have an opportunity. Those kids are soaking in information through our modeling. They learn what we teach, and they're always learning. We say puppies learn every moment's a learning moment. That is true of our children as well. And we've got a lot of work to do and we can change more in those early development stages by modeling better reciprocal, you know, respect and, and um, observing communication and broadcasting what we're seeing and that kind of thing. So that's, that's mine, creating dog aware generations.
1: Right. It's, it's, you know, really, I completely agree with that. And I, and I love that it's, you know, you start with educating them when they're young about how to, you know, interact properly with dogs. What have you seen as the most effective avenues for doing that? So, you know, I know you advocate for education in school, maybe having somebody, a trainer pop in and do education at a school. You have your conference, you have your website, you have many ways of reaching out. What have you seen be the most effective?
0: I think really getting the light bulb moments with parents, you know, helping them, like using, you know, honestly, that one-on-one, nothing replaces one-on-one consultations that time that we can look at their dog and look at pictures and sh- and and have those learning moments a lot of times when someone comes to me and they've had an incident I'll ask for previously taken images and we look and and play doggy detective together and when they see it on their big screen and then they see that other dogs do it too I'll take their image and I'll put it next to another dog showing the same body language and they start going, oh, there is some predictability. Like that one-on-one with our clients, really helping them to see this. I, to me, that I know it's one person at a time, but it's that person who tells another person it's bigger than that. We're doing a lot of work, a lot of good things when we're helping one person, just one person at a time, can make a difference. I really believe it.
1: How do we combat social media? So we got a viral, oh we got a viral video... <laughs> Some dogs, you know, like the baby sleeping on the dog, and everybody thinks it's cute, and it's all like these likes and shares. Yeah. And we're as trainers trying to battle that. We put out information about why that's not cute, and we get you know one hundredth of or thousandth of the amount of shares or things when we're trying to advocate for that. So, what do you what are your ideas on that?
0: Oh gosh, I have so many, but I. I don't engage in that. Um, you know, honestly, I'm, I really feel that, first of all, I don't share those things. And there's a reason Family Pause Parent Education does not share examples of what I don't want. I could get a ton of followers if I shared those viral videos and use them as examples. I would rather post examples of what we want to see. So when I see something that's going viral, you'll see a post that I'll do that counters and states what we want to see. And that's just my approach. It doesn't have to be everybody's approach, but I, I, I usually don't comment because those people don't want to hear it, and I don't want to be told off, and there's no reason to argue with people who don't want to listen. So <laughs> I put out what I, I do what I do, and I stay in my corner, and I put out what I want to put out, and I show examples of what we want to see. And maybe that's not everybody's way, but that's my way. So it's frustrating. It is really frustrating, but I believe we've got to get more positive examples out there. That's our job.
1: Well, I can certainly share that philosophy <laughs> with you because I approach it in the same way. You know, I don't think it's necessary to criticize others. No. It's Just important. The more you put out good information about safety and how to interact with dogs and what to do uh, in certain scenarios, is the way to go. At and least, he, and, at least for and me. He,
0: and what I want to say to that too is, images are impactful. So even if I'm sharing and I have a whole description of what I don't like about it or or what we would change, that image is lasting. And so I don't like even putting the image out there because those images stay in our heads whether we like it or not. So if it's a kid hugging a dog and that person thinks it's cute, they're going to recreate that image. And so I'd rather show better examples. That's, I, I strongly believe that.
1: Jen, thanks so much for joining me today. You were fabulous. Lots of great information there. Where can people go to find more about you and what you have to offer them? What do you have going on?
0: Oh, gosh. Um, they can definitely go to familypause.com. And we have our, we just finished an educator course. Um, and we just finished yesterday. We have another one in August starting. So we're, it's the last one of the year. So we're looking, always looking for um, qualified educators. And uh, we've got some new programs coming up. So that's exciting. And we're always creating new materials. We've got some great activity sheets for everybody to use with their clients. And please go to our resource page because all that stuff is free for everybody. And I'm available too, um, to all trainers. Anybody who has questions, needs support, I welcome you to call. It's important we all support each other, especially in these tough times and cases. Yeah.
1: Right, Jen, thanks so much. Everybody go Thank to you. familypause.com. I appreciate you being here today and I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for the bitey end of the dog. If you like the show, please feel free to subscribe, share, or give a rating to the episode. And don't forget to hop on over to AggressiveDog.com or the Loose Leash Academy for more information about webinars, courses, and conferences all dedicated to helping dogs with aggression issues.